Let's go to the Lord right away into prayer and then watch what He wants to do here. Lord, thank You so much for the privilege of being able to praise You, for the honor of being able to open our hearts to You, Lord. And we do confess that we need You. We need You. We need You. And Lord, thank You for what You're going to teach us today. Thank You, Lord. And we pray, though, even though if the food be prepared and laid on the table, we could still go hungry. But that isn't Your choice. That's ours. But let it not be the case. May we feast on Your Word today. May we delight in you and your word today. And may we celebrate the God who rejoices over us with singing. Let your word burst open and come alive for us on this, this communion Sunday. May we celebrate you in a way that is fervent and real, genuine, passionate. And if there be any who have yet to know you as their Lord and Savior, let this be the day of their salvation. So we surrender this time every second to you, Lord. Have your way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. Okay, here we are in Leviticus. We've looked at the sacrifices. We've looked at our need for atonement. We've looked at our walk to the feasts that God wants us to be living in. And then finally, in our final four chapters, we are now looking at really the idea of keeping our light burning bright. That's what God intends here. He wants for us to not just be people that talk about the glory days like they were past. Can I just honestly say that if you think the best days of your walk with Christ are behind you, why doesn't He just kill you and get it over with? See, just because you're older doesn't mean God's not about to roll up his sleeves and do his best work ever. We see that all through Scripture. And we see people who have fallen that God restores and are brought to greater ministries than they could before. People who've tried things and failed and brought back, like Paul, for instance, who, by the way, then we see glorious things come out of it, greater ministries than before. We see people waiting. And then God bringing them to ministry. We see people walking through wildernesses and running for their life. And then brought to great ministry. So don't tell me that the greatest days are behind you. God has never intended for you to look back and make a monument of your walk with Christ. It's a walk, not a lay down with Christ. We rest in Him for our salvation and walk with Him as we grow. And God has intended in these last four chapters to give us simple exhortations and challenges of what it would look like if a church... Collectively, collectively, just a group of people that love Jesus, set apart for His glory to touch the world and influence each other to that purpose. What would it be like if we were what God called us to be? I mean, could you imagine? I mean, I'm not just talking about, yeah, I'm saved, can't wait to go to heaven, sit down on the grass, play my harp. This country has been the hot seat of revolutions in the name of Jesus. Just like in the book of Judges or even more so throughout the books of Kings where you see someone step in and the whole place catches fire. But you know what's so amazing is it takes a generation for people to go by and make it look like it's never ever been there in the first place. And I think there's a reason for that. God does not want us sitting back on the laurels of our previous trophies. He wants us moving forward. And what if this generation, 2014, this generation rose up and our lights burned the way God intended them to? 
Not just one torch in the room. Not just a pastor passionate or a, or some part of the congregation nodding in agreement or an occasional amen or a grunt of, of awareness. But saying, you know what, no really, what if we did this? What if we really were on fuego for the Lord? So we've been challenged. In this particular chapter now, we are brought to an event like no other event. Look at it with me. And and I guarantee you in this, if we grab a hold of what God has to say here, we may walk out of here a whole lot brighter. Well, the first seven verses he says this. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. What grows on its own accord of your harvest you shall not reap, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine, for it is the year of rest for the Lord. The Sabbath of the land shall be food for you, for you, your male and female, servants, your hired man, and the stranger who dwells with you. For your livestock and the beasts that are in your land, all its produce shall be for food. Before God winds up with this sort of apex of holidays, and last, as we've looked at it a couple weeks ago, we saw that there were seven holidays that were annual But even before he gave us those seven annual holidays, remember how he gave us the Sabbath first and said, I want you to take a day of the week and congregate. Get together and be available to be led by me, to be used by me, to grow in me, to be equipped into the locker room, to be sent out into the field. God wanted that to be the case so that those feasts were in essence then the eruption to the small installments you had been making all year long every Sabbath. Now God prepares us here and he shows us that the land is supposed to receive the same. One of every seven years, you don't farm. We're in an agrarian culture, which means that's what we do. We farm and we ranch. We raise animals and we grow things to feed them. Or we grow food to feed ourselves. Grain, fruit... And for six years, just like six days that you work, you're in the field. That's what you know. That's what your grandfather will know. You're going to be in the land for quite a while. Don't miss it. You're going to know what it's like to permanently have dirt under your nails. You're going to know what it's like to smell the harvest. Farmers are amazing people. I'm not a farmer. I was raised in the city. I, kinda, I actually like the smell of bus fumes. I, can, I mean, not like inadvertently like to where I inhale them and knock myself out but I like the smell of the underground sometimes but that sort of traditional smell you get in the winter where you know it's been sort of the smell of the the trains and such and you kind of just because it just smells like home to me now for some of you that's weird some love the smell of fertilizer on a lawn because it smells like home to them for me it smells like poop because it is But there is this thing I've discovered with people who do farm, where if you blindfolded them and completely disoriented them, what time of year they can walk out and they can smell the harvest when it's still in the ground. There's something they can just, they know the smells, they know the sounds. 
There's just something about it. It becomes, you kind of think to some degree, who you are. And that's the point of this. Interesting, from the time Israel will get a king, that's roughly around David, well, Saul and David, that's roughly about a thousand, just below a thousand BC, till they're taken captive, there will be no land Sabbaths. By the time that the people choose another king other than God, they will spend their time working instead of resting. And, and harder and harder and harder and getting less for it. But, but don't miss me on this. There's something beautiful about what God wants to tell us in this as we start this. Because, well, here, here's the problem. Is somewhere down the line we were teens. Some of you still are. And people started to ask that dangerous question, sure, what are you going to do with your life? And you know that ultimately you need to give like a one-sentence answer, which means that your life is going to be defined by a small handful of words. Isn't that sad? I'm going to farm. I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be an accountant. I'm going to be a performer. No, 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 really. What are you going to be? And in somewhere down the line, you start moving towards that direction. Somewhere, if you're a little bit astute or motivated, perhaps you start to see what it looks like at the top. In this particular interest, this is what it looks like to be the very best of that field. And you almost set your targets for it. That's Broadway. That's the West End. That's Oxford Street. And to be on the top of that... It's television, daytime programming, or evening, prime time. It's the silver screen. It's accountant of the year, teacher of the year. It's to be knighted. It's to have a hit song. And you get somewhere in all of that, and, and for most, of course, we might just go, well, you know, we find ourselves in something. And so there we are, running a retail shop. And there we are doing whatever that thing is that we just kind of think will pass the time and then you blink and all of a sudden you're retiring. Kids have been and gone and you get that one brief moment somewhere after all of that where you sit down and you go, now what in the heck am I going to do with myself? And you realize how much time has passed and you've never even sat down and really given an honest thought to whether where you wanted to go was where you are now. And it happens like that. And the older you get, the more it speeds up, doesn't it? It's like you're afraid to blink. And everyone tells you that the moment you have children. Don't blink, she'll be 13. I blinked, dang it. And then you look back and you think, is the family what I wanted it to be? Are my kids what I hoped they would be? Is my relationship what I want it to be? God, what about us? God says, I don't want to wait that long for this. That's not what we're about. Because somewhere down the line, you get caught in the rut. You know what I mean? And you get caught into the rut enough so that when people say, who are you, what do you do, or whatever, and you don't say Christian. You don't say, I go to church and I love Jesus. No, maybe you might. Praise God that you're on the right track. But for most of us, we'll just kind of, I do, I say, I invest. I, And you get used to it. So you buy your own press clippings. God says, how about this? If I just said, tend to the soil, 
You'll come in at 20, you'll blink, you're 65, and they'll ask, what have you done? And you're, I'm a farmer. That's all you do. I'm a farmer. God says, it's not what I want. You see, what I want is so much more. What I want is for us to take a year. What do you do when you don't farm? Could you imagine what you would do if you didn't do what you do for a whole year? Would you travel? Would you start looking around and realizing the people that are near you that you've taken for granted? Would you start looking at church and thinking of it differently? Would you try to figure out what are the new excuses to give God because you've been telling him you're too busy because of what you do? And God says, I'm not going to even let you get there. Every seventh year, stop. Stop. Stop trying to make your life just this temporary little world that you live in. Because like it or not, and I'm not here to, like, I'm here to say bright sunny day, we're still polishing the Titanic. This baby's going down no matter how much you polish it. It's interesting, 50 years ago, it was the Christians saying the world's coming to an end and the scientists were calling them nincompoops. Now it's the scientists saying the world will end and it's the Christians calling them nincompoops. That's an interesting flip. This is one area we could actually agree with the scientists. The only difference is we can applaud it and say, it's not a problem. I got my life going, how are you doing? The scientist says, oh no, we need to get rid of complex fluorocarbons. No more hairspray. That ought to do it. The ozone is being depleted more by, if you'll pardon me for saying, by farting cows than it is by hairspray, by the measure of about 260 to 1. Just in case you wanted to know, don't believe me on anything. Search for your own. Now, I'm not telling you that means, you know, so what do you do? You spray cows with hairspray. I'm just kidding. All right, now, follow me on this. Because it isn't just about you. Juan owns a farm, hypothetically. And Juan's got a farm with Gonzalo, Rodrigo, Ese, Compadre, his workers. And as he has these workers, for six years he works them. And they know the field, they know the smell of the harvest, they know how to invest. What does he do with them on the seventh year? He can't work them. But they're still his. They become family. Everybody becomes more family. That's what happens in that seventh year. And for that seventh year, you know what you do? You start looking around and you start taking a careful inventory of what really matters. You know, maybe you don't have that seventh year thing, but do you have anything like that? Anything that says, you know what? I really need to stop and think, is this really going to affect eternity? Is there an eternal benefit to this? What is the eternal benefit to this? Because for a year you stop farming. Every seventh year at the church, we try to spend more time just investing in the church. We love to do evangelism and work the field around us. But on that seventh year, we just try to take a little bit more time just to make sure that it isn't about bringing people in and counting numbers and that kind of dumb stuff that doesn't mean anything in the sight of eternity. And making sure that we're all really about Jesus. Because he moves from this, like he did from the Sabbath to the feast, now to the land Sabbath, to the greatest feast of all. And what's crazy is, this isn't a feast where he tells us about all this food and sacrifices we have to make. Actually, this is a feast that we have in our own home we haven't been in in 
a long time in some cases as long as we've been alive. Verse 8, look at it with me. And you shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years. Anyone good with math or even roughly seven times seven is? Thank you. It's just 49. And then it shall be 49 years, in case you didn't get it, it's right in the verse. Verse 9, and it says, Then you shall cause the trumpet of the jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all your land. You shall consecrate the fiftieth year. And proclaim liberty throughout all the land to its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. And each of you shall return to his possession. And each of you shall return to his family. The fiftieth year shall be a jubilee to you. It shall be night. You shall neither sow nor reap what grows of its own accord, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine. For it is the jubilee, in case you didn't get it. It is holy to you. You shall eat its produce from the field. It is the year of Jubilee. Each of you shall return to his possession. Now, before we even move here, I want you to look back for a moment at something because it's something I want to clear up. We're going to get later on in this, they're like, well, how are you going to live, smarty pants? I mean, if you don't work that seventh year, how is it going to work? Now, it's interesting because you look back at here, look for a, for a moment with me. At verse 6, do you know how it's, see how it says, and the Sabbath produce of the land shall be food for you? And you go, but wait a minute, later on he'll tell you that he's going to give you a bumper crop in sixth year, so you don't have to do it. But notice the word produce is in italics, do you see that? Do you know what that means? It wasn't in the original text. And again, translators are trying to help you better understand, so they're adding the word to kind of keep it clear. But what if you pulled it out, what does it say? It says, the Sabbath, interestingly enough, of the land shall be food for you. And that's different altogether. What he's really saying is, look at I actually want you to be able to feast on rest with me for a seventh year. I want the world to know that you are not going to freak out when the bills come, even if you don't know where the money's coming from, because you're going to trust me. That's how we prepare for this. And now he takes us to this. And by the way, the rest of the chapter will be living in light of the Jubilee. That's the whole idea of it. He'll talk about people, he'll talk about land, he'll talk about houses. In all of it, we live in the light of this jubilee. Everything, everything revolves around it. Here's the idea. Every 50th year, all debts are canceled. You cannot owe anything for more than 50 years. And that's the greatest extent. That's if right after jubilee you got into some kind of contract. You can't owe beyond that because on the year of jubilee, a trumpet is blown and we go home. We are gathered together and we go to the home. Now here's the idea. When we take the land of the promised land that Joshua will show us in the book of Joshua, there'll be land, there'll be Jenny's family. It'll be McCaffrey place. And the McCaffreyites will be there. That will be the idea. And with every person here, there will be that. There will be the Georgiaites. And the Georgiaites, that almost sounds like something from it, doesn't it? The Georgiaites. And they'll be like, oh, all the land comes from Greek land. And so the Georgiaites will be their area. That will be the kind of idea. There will be the Leites. There will be the Grantites. There will be the Hendersonites. And the areas will go. But what can happen during that time is, is that somewhere down the line, if famine hits, maybe things are a little rough for the McCaffreyites. And so for the McCaffreyites, what happens is they have to sell the land to somebody else until they can get money back. And one of the things, so what happens is they sell themselves and become servants on their land. 
And during whatever the period of time is, the most amount of time they can owe is until the next jubilee. It isn't like they count 50 years. If the next jubilee, think about it, what if the jubilee was in 2014? Or it was in 2015? That means you got a year. In 2015, you would sell the land, people would pay a specific amount for the land or whatever, and they would know they get it for a year. Because after that year, Jenny and her family get the land back. Do you get it? If Jenny is so poor that she sells herself as a slave to some other family or a servant, because they'll say here, that's not the way you treat each other. And he, she cannot afford to live there. But what she does is she puts herself under than Shirley's hire. Shirley cannot hire her for longer than Jubilee. When the Jubilee hits, she goes home. That's it. All debts are canceled. Do you get it? And therefore he'll say, so if you're going to get into a loan, know when Jubilee's happening because you kind of know if you have five years, payments are big. If you have 30 years, payments are smaller. Isn't that how that works? And so everything is lived in light of that because you know there is a day when everything changes and we all go home. Are you with me on that? So how does that apply to us? Well, let me tell you this. God has promised that there is a day and he tells us it begins with the blowing of a trumpet. And when that trumpet is blown, all of us go home. Every debt is canceled. We leave the service. We leave the work. We leave the field. And we go home to rest and celebrate. Now please hear me. Regardless of where you stand on the end times, the fancy words eschatology, I have to let you know my perspective so you know that I'm not teaching from a bend and I'm trying to turn you on to. I'm just trying to make clear where I come from in this. And this is the way I've gotten there. Is my view of the end times came from reading scripture. I didn't listen to tapes, teaching series, highbrow individuals. I came up with what the Lord showed me in scripture. And then I went from that then to looking around and realized it was before, by the way, I actually found myself affiliated with anything and I found myself going, wow, there are other people who think the way I do. So here's the good news on this. You're welcome to disagree with this, but you better have a good scriptural reason for it because there are different views on how this whole thing wraps up. We all can agree it is going to wrap up. But let me show you at least, and this is how I've done it. What does the Old Testament say? Is, is type an example. What does Jesus teach? What do we see at all in the book of Acts? And what's taught in the epistles? And then how do we get there in the book of Revelation? Follow me on this, because I understand why he would put this here for our lights to burn bright. Can you think, friends, of how many times in Scripture God has done a universal worldwide judgment on the earth. How many times? Once. And that one time was with whom? With Noah. Can you think of how many times God has done the same form of, but to a smaller scale, epic destruction of an area in Scripture? Egypt was rebuilt, but there was one place that was forever destroyed. Sodom and Gomorrah, only once. This is where I started. And as I looked at Noah, you know what I realized was interesting? Is that with Noah, God waited. By the way, put this, what we read as a preacher of righteousness out, for over a hundred years to go and build an ark, to share everyone with everyone. But understand, according to scripture, water had never fallen from the sky. So you can imagine, every scientist of the day would look at Noah like he was an idiot. 
you mean that's so unscientific? We don't, we've never seen anything like that before. Water's gonna fall from the sky. What kind of idiot are you? And he's like, no, that's what God said. I'm building a big boat and I'm gonna pull in a bunch of animals. And everybody refuses him but his family. And in he goes, and we read that the rain doesn't start until God seals, and this is what it says, listen. According to the book of Genesis, it says this. Genesis 7.16 So they entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded them, and the Lord shut him in, and then came destruction. God had this habit of sealing away carefully and then performing his destruction. How about the case with Lot? Interesting, in the case with Lot, by the way, if you remember, Lot really wasn't that quick to leave Sodom. Are you aware of that? He actually gets to get, he has to be dragged out by the angels. But listen to this interesting statement. The statement's in Genesis 19.22, and it says, Hurry, escape. This is the angel speaking a lot. For I cannot do anything until you arrive there. And arrive there is to this town of Zoar. In other words, I can't do anything to destroy this place till I get you and your family out. Are you with me on this? That's how this whole thing started. Now, we already know of people that God just kind of whisks up because we had Enoch, if you remember, that walked with the Lord, and then he was no more. God just carried him up. We know with Elijah that God carried him up. But God is this heaven when he performs judgment of actually pulling away his own and then performing the destruction. That's at least God's history. We could call that a precedent. Does that make sense, saints? Interesting as that is the case, because when God says that the last days will be like the days of Noah and like the days of Lot, that's the two people he uses as an example. Do you think that's the purpose behind that? When I look at what Jesus taught... It's interesting because when Jesus was talking about his departure, in John chapter 14, verse 1, he says this, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go prepare a place for you. Listen, I go now to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare this place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself That where I am, there you may be also. Where? Where he's going to prepare a place for us. In the same chapter, verse 18, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. Interesting, because when Jesus starts to teach about this, he talks about these last days when they ask him in Matthew 14, they ask him three questions. What will be the sign of your coming in the last days? In Matthew 14, 36, listen to this. He says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. As were the days of Noah also, there were so the coming of the Son of Man be. For as the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Two will be in the field, one will be taken. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, the other left. And his call then, watch, therefore. For you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. You do not know when he's coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you don't expect. Who then is faithful, the faithful and wise servant, whom his master made ruler over his household to give food in due season? Blessed 
is that servant whom his master, when he comes, finds him so doing. What is he doing? He is watching for him. Therefore, he gets to the next chapter, tells us the parable of ten virgins, and then says in verse 13, Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Jesus says, as lightning flashes in the east and is seen in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Let's just make it clear. When lightning flashes in the east and is seen in the west, you're not going to miss it. When the Lord comes, don't worry, you'll know. You will not need to go and check CNN, check Premier for the Christian Bend on it, pop open the Guardian or the Metro. I guarantee you when the Lord comes, everyone is going to know. In Acts chapter 1, what do we know about the disciples? Now, granted, they may not have gotten everything, but but with the disciples, when Jesus said to them then, well, wait here in Jerusalem, and when you wait in Jerusalem, wait for the power of the Father, because the Holy Spirit's going to be coming upon you, and when it happens, you'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the the earth. When Jesus is preparing them for that, they say, oh, now is now the time you're going to prepare the kingdom. Is now the time you're going to restore the nation of Israel. And the reason I say that is the disciples were always living in expectation that it could be any minute. They lived in that expectation. Jesus said, no, 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 those hours, that's not for you to know. Many people believed it was going to happen before John died. That was actually part of the fun. John would say that at the end of his gospel. He'd say, you know what, Jesus didn't say that. He just said, what does it matter to you, Peter, if this guy lives beyond you? Some people just thought they wouldn't die. Every time John got a cold, people were like, ah, the Lord's coming. And that's kind of exciting. Please, please hear me. That when Jesus ascends then, and what we read is, he ascended physically and literally right there at the Mount of Olives in Acts chapter 1. And as they're watching him, why are they watching him? Because they see him leaving, right? It doesn't say they're searching for him. It isn't like they're going, where'd he go? He's somewhere up there. I mean, they're watching him. And as they're watching him, two angels appear. Two men in white is what we read. And they say, men of Galilee... Why do you stand staring into the sky? This same Jesus will return in the same way that you saw him leave. Get that. Now don't miss that. The same Jesus, because Jesus had said in Matthew 24 that false Christs are going to arise all over the place. There's over 1,100 registered people calling themselves Jesus in one manner or another on the earth right now. Over 1,100 of them. And then there's the real one. (laughs) There's that race car driver from France. There's the guy that's, you know, the, the, the South Korean guy that moved to Chicago. And, you know, there's, there's all kinds of interesting people. There's the guy, by the way, in Taiwan who made a video of himself saying he was going to call fire down. And it never really happened, but he said it was invisible fire. But, you know, there you go. So, you know, if you think you'd hire a CG guy and at least get it on his video, you know. I mean, well, let's face it. If anyone showed you a video today, wouldn't you just think it was doctored? Or just so not in that generation? But Jesus says, when he comes back, it will, he'll come back the way you saw him. The, the real Jesus, if we can dare say it that way. And that's the way I'm going to say it. He's not going to come back mystically. He's not going to come back like someday, all of a sudden, one of you are going to wake up and go, oh, I just discovered I'm Jesus. No, no, you didn't. What you discovered is you're delusional in what you discovered. So please hear me on that. Jesus said, so if they say, there he is in the inner room, or in the upper room, or in the inner chamber, or there he is in the, in the mountains, don't go. 
Because they're clearly lying to you. Because as lightning flashes in the east and seen in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Do you get that? Interesting, because there are groups today that will witness to you about like Jehovah or whatever, and that will tell you, they have three different times where they, to the day said, this is when he's coming back. And the first time when that was, hey, it was a world war. Give them a little bit of credit. Seemed like the end of the world, wouldn't you think? And they said, on this specific day. But remember, Jesus said, no man could know the day or the hour. So the first, the time when some guy, whether he's a brother or whatever, on, on the radio right now that says the church age is over, just listen to his radio station. Huh, convenient. Or whether it is one of these, you know, pamphlets that you get, and they give you a day. Clearly they're already lying because the Bible says no one can know the day of the hour. He says even angels don't know that. They didn't get the memo yet. But please hear me. He, Jesus said if he's in the inner room, the inner chamber, the mountains, don't believe him. When, Jesus, when they said Jesus was going to show up and he didn't show up, well now you have to say something, right? It's amazing. Anybody follows somebody after a moment like that. You know, here's the best part. What they said, I kid you not, he came, but we weren't ready, so he went into the inner chamber. Isn't that just beautiful? So if they had said he was at McDonald's, it would have been harder to prove him against from Scripture. But because it was exactly what Jesus said, don't believe, all you have to do is read Matthew 24 and go, well, you're done. That's it. You get that? See, understand, this is our hope. And please hear me on this. And I'll get to a few more scriptures. We'll get actually to the end and see a little bit more of this. Jesus said he wasn't just going to come and pull us out of this thing. He was going to come and receive us to himself that where he is, we would be also. Please hear that. My hope is not escaping this. My hope is whom I'm going to. Because if we really think that the best part of something like what we would call the rapture is the Lord just getting us out of this? Great, I'll just might as well max out my credit cards because I won't need them anyways, right? I mean, really, that's the best you got? Is escaping this? Like we're just thankful for what we're leaving than what we're gaining? I think we're missing the point. Because Jesus didn't say, I'll come and take you out of that. He says, I'll come and receive you to myself. Now, now please hear me in this. The word rapture, by the way, people say, well, why don't you find it in Scripture? Because it's a Latin word and Scripture wasn't written in Latin. The word is snatched up. Harpazo. Listen to this. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. For the Lord will descend with a loud command, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. Get it? And the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And we will be with him forever. Caught up is the word harpazo. That's the word that we would get rapture from. We'll be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Though those words encourage you, that there is a day when he is going to pick you up, snatch you out of here, and the idea of it's violent grab. And I think for some people it's going to need to be. You know what I mean? Like some of us are busy on that. I'm just trying to grow roots. The Lord's like, I'm going to have to yank you up by the roots, aren't I? Might have to be a violent grab. But for some of us, man, what happy is the one, is the master... Happy is the servant for whom the master finds so doing. When he looks and he's just like looking and going, Oh Lord, any moment's cool with me. Any moment's good. Now, what if you're single? I just know what's going to happen. I'm going to say, this is the talk of a guy. I'm going to say, I do. We're going to get married. We're going to head off to our little honeymoon. And the Lord's going to come back. And I'm trying to be crass. I hear that so often. Like, look at 
I guarantee you, there's no looking back. When the Lord comes, it's going to be worth everything to leave behind. If, if you're marrying a Christian, you won't have to worry about it. You get to spend eternity with him anyway. Please hear me. The argument really isn't over whether the Lord's coming back normally for Christians. Although, scripturally, I think it's insane not to think so. The question is when. See, there is a particular time coming, and this comes from the book of, of Revelation, by the way, that we call the time of great tribulation, or just really, really bad days. Tribulation just means rough times, trials. The real question, if we understand the heart of God, is why does he even have that time in the first place? Is God doing that because what he really wants to do is really punish people? People have made fun of him. He's like, <laughs> are you like, now? Is that really what we have here? God nailing him like that? Oh, listen, listen, listen. For what it's worth. And it's, to me, it's worth a great deal. In Revelation chapter 3, he speaks to the church of Philadelphia, the only church that seems to be the missional church of the seven written in the book of Revelation. You have your Bibles? Open them up. This should be easy to find. Last book, chapter 3. Look at verse 10 with me. Revelation 3, verse 10. And he says this, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Why is God allowing this time that we know of as a great tribulation? Because he's giving a test. Why do we not need, not need to be there? Because we've already passed. The moment we accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, we've already passed the test. That's the beauty. This is before the tribulation. Revelation is a very easy book, by the way. I don't know how you, you might be intimidated, but it's a very easy book. It's very simple. Jesus shows himself to John. John's in his late, probably mid to late 90s. And Jesus says in chapter 1, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which must take place after these things. Meditata, after these things. And that's the whole structure of the book. Chapter 1, he writes Jesus glorified. In other words, what Jesus looks like when he's at home. That's chapter 1, what he has seen. Chapters 2 and 3, seven letters to seven churches, because that's the things which are. From chapter 4 on, what must take place, not might, but must take place after these things. The word metatauta, it's so important that the first verse of chapter 4 starts and ends with the word. Just to make sure you get it. Now what takes place? Follow me on, it's quite simple. 4 and 5, this huge celebration of people that celebrate that the Lamb has taken the scroll. Then you have 6 through 19, this time of great trouble or tribulation. Celebration, tribulation, and then restoration. That's the end. Now follow me on that. The churches were in a mess, but God says, if you're willing to persevere with me, I'll pull you out of that. You won't need to be there. Where are we? We're at that celebration. And as we're at the celebration, God says, now meanwhile, down on earth, and we don't like to read 6 through 19 because things are really ugly. Here's the good news. You get to miss it. You get box seats at best. 
if you've accepted the gift of Jesus. I'm not trying to threaten you into Christ. That would be dumb. But it is a very nice benefit now, isn't it? (laughs) And during that time, what's interesting is, there is this time of of trouble, three different waves as we see them, three different sets of judgments, and after each one of them, there is a set of witnesses that come. There are 144,000 then that are gathered up. There are two witnesses that come, as you probably know, Elijah, more than likely Elijah Moses, but just the same. And then, at the end of it, there are angels that span the earth proclaiming the everlasting gospel. Why would God do that? Because the whole idea is simple. That if you don't want to receive Jesus under this kind of circumstance, you might receive Him under something a little rougher. And when God's dwelling from an eternal perspective, He would rather have you crawling than not come at all. You get it? But if you've already come, woohoo! Now, does that sort of make sense? So some will say that the Lord's going to come for His people before that time, some during the middle, some at the end. I'm an optimist. I tend to, looking at the heart of God, I tend to think before. If He doesn't show up then, I'll say middle. But I'm pretty confident that He's going to come early. Because that's his, sort of His habit according to Noah and Lot. But here's the key. You can be a Christian and stand on any one of these perspectives. There is no sin in believing any one of these perspectives. The sin is when we draw battle lines and we refuse to fellowship with people that believe differently. One day, we are all going to agree. And I guarantee you, on your way up, you're not going to look over and go, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> not the time for it. The Lord's like, well, why don't I just put you back? No, 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 I was just kidding, I was just kidding. I heard one particular man say once that he hopes that he's standing between two unbelievers during the rapture and he's going to grab him by the hand halfway up. He's going to say, you can accept Christ or do I let go? I mean, that's the idea. (laughs) Now, please, please hear me. Please. His apostles lived in earnest expectation of his return. They lived in it. And his church doesn't today. And I believe it's one of the reasons the church isn't the light, because we just don't think it matters. Hey, if the enemy can't can't convince you that there's no hell, and if the enemy can't convince you that there's no harm, he can convince you there's no hurry. And so we all sit around and get fat like Jabba the Hutt on our spiritual knowledge, but don't ever take the field, because we think, oh, I've got time just like what we said when we were invincible at 20 and then we blinked and we were 65 and retiring. Just like those first few verses. And when you stop for a moment and get away and review, you start asking, wait a minute. Um, am I really where I'm supposed to be in this? If the Lord were to come back right now, is this what I want to be doing? Can I say, yes, yes it is. I want to be here with you. I hope the Lord comes back in a moment like this. Because we can all, man, we'll just, I'll start us in a song on our way up. One of the things is I get to look around and see my family. And let's face it, on your way up, you're not going to be checking your iPhone or iPad or seeing whether you locked your car. 
The only thing I would be looking around for at all are people I love. How about you? It's the only thing that becomes important now. And I think that's the biggest issue here. If our lights are to be burning, we live in, in a very deep awareness that in any given second we could be standing before the Lord. And in, no matter how you want to play this thing, one thing you can be sure of is you cannot guarantee your next breath. So no matter where you want to play in this, even if you want to play, I don't want to talk about eschatology and all that stuff. Hey, look, it was a part of this and people want to get mental on it. I've heard people say, unless you believe our perspective, you're not even saved. I have a real problem with that and I'm sure the Lord does too. I know that the church that Paul invested in, he taught an eminent return of Christ because people were being deceived in 2 Thessalonians. That He says, I know that people have come after me saying that the rapture's already happened. So they believed in it. Now please hear me. If we love each other the way God called us to and knew that every breath we have is a gift, everything looks a little different. It's interesting. 2 Corinthians 5.8 tells us that if we're going to be absent of the body, we're going to be present with Christ. Like it or not, when you're done with this thing, you stand before him. It's appointed unto man once to die and then to judgment. You don't get a second chance on this. But the psalmist said in Psalm 39:4, Lord, make me to know my end. What is the measure of my days that I may know how frail I am? In Psalm 90, verse 12, it says, Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. James taught us in chapter 4, verse 13, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? It's just a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live do this or that. The rest of the chapter picks up now. But here's my question. Are you dwelling attached to the Jubilee? Is your life lived in the shadow of the Jubilee? Well, you know, one day, you're going home. This isn't it. Everything you buy, you will not own permanently. Let's be honest. The only thing you're going to spend eternity with are other people in Jesus. And in light of the Jubilee, everything, everything changes, doesn't it? The harvest looks different. Our investments look different. Because if the Lord were to come back right now, what are you soaking your time, your heart, your life into that has no eternal benefit? Now, I'm not saying don't work, quit your job, get on you know, government subsidies, and then just... You know, I'm telling you, do what the Lord tells you. But use whatever God's given you to glorify Him. Be His. So listen, let's pick it up now. 14 through 24. If you sell anything to a neighbor or buy your neighbor's land, he shall not oppress one another. According to the number of the years of the Jubilee, you shall buy from your neighbor. And according to the number of the years of crops, he shall sell it to you. According to the multitude of years, and increase or decrease the price. That's what he tells us. In verse 17, he says, Don't oppress one another, because, but fear the Lord. I'm the Lord your God. You shall observe my statutes, my judgments, perform them, and you will dwell in the city and safely. The land will yield its fruit, and you'll eat your fill. You'll dwell in it safety. And if you say, well, then what do we eat in the seventh year, since we won't sow nor gather in, in our produce? Then I will command my blessing on you on the sixth year, and I will bring forth produce enough for these years. And you shall sow 
in the eighth year and eat old produce until the ninth year until the produce comes in. In other words, he goes, look it, I'll give you a bumper crop before this. You won't have to worry about it so you can rest. The land shall not be sold permanently, verse 23, for the land is mine. You're strangers and sojourners with me. Please understand, this is the first thing that happens when I know that my life is temporary here on earth. Is that I realize this is my hotel room and I'm checking out someday. And I have to live in the reality of that. You ever get so caught up in a game like Monopoly that your whole, the whole, your whole mind's consumed in it and then you get all the money but you can't spend any of it anywhere. You're like, I got the money. I got the... But then you walk out of there and you still can't get a burger at McDonald's. One day, everything you have here will not spend elsewhere. Well, do I realize that the land is is the Lord? Some people say, this is Satan's world. Well, where in the world did you get that? Psalm 24, verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's in its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. Psalm 39, 12 tells us, by the way, that I'm a stranger, a sojourner says the psalmist. Psalm 119, I'm a stranger, verse 19. I'm a stranger in the earth. Hebrews 11:9 tells us that about those who were heroes of the faith, that they waited for a city which had foundations, whose builder and maker was God, because they dwelt in tents like Isaac and Jacob. In Hebrews 11:13, it says that those people died in faith, having not received the promises, but saw them afar off, were assured of them, embraced those promises, and therefore confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. What I've learned is, is that, you know, there's some places I'm never going to look like a native. I'm flying to Nigeria. Nobody's going to believe I'm a native. Ironically, no one thought I was American. They thought I was someone from Russia. Go figure. I get, you know, Australian the most, I think. South African. I'm not sure how that works. I just know this. Then when they ask, so where are you from? I'm like, where's my citizenship? Yeah, heaven. (laughs) That really freaks them out. They don't know what to do with that. But if I forget that, and I've spent all my time in the soil, and I forget that when it really comes time to retire, because by the way, I hope you recognize, I have no intent to retire until he takes me home. That's the way I live. I told my wife, paint people on a wall if you put me in an old folks' home, get someone with their hand up, you know. So I was like, hey, you responded! You responded! My children, I'm told they look at I changed your nappies, you'll have your turn. 1 Peter 2.11 says, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from the fleshly lusts which war against your soul. And is that where we're living? I mean, do we have any of that? Well, no wonder why our light doesn't burn bright. Because if our light burns bright, it offends people. But if we really aren't from around here, we're really, and we're okay with that, then we're going to let our light so shine. If we're so busy really trying to just look like we're natives in the land of the dead, we're not going to let our light shine. So you know what happens? You show up at work and you're afraid to wear a cross because of what someone might think. You're certainly afraid to carry a Bible. You know, someone's going to erupt on that. You're afraid to say, God bless you when someone sneezes. I just push it. Jesus bless you. I didn't want you to have to guess which God we were talking about. 
It's amazing people look at you like, but you might say, God curse you? Verses 25 to 28. Someone becomes poor, has to sell his possessions, and redeeming, can redeem it. A brother can redeem it. A man can redeem it. But he has to become able to redeem it. If he comes to that point and he's actually able to redeem back, he can do so. But in all of that, you need to recognize it will be restored to him, verse 28. What he has sold will remain in the hand of him who bought it until the year of Jubilee. But when Jubilee happens, it has to be released. He has to return it. In verses 29 through 32, for what it's worth, he tells us that the city is different from the fields. He says, living in the city, you sell your, land, you sell your house, actually you lose it. It doesn't come back to you in Jubilee. Because a city is a temporary dwelling anyways. It's a place for other things. But the land, anything that's attached to a field goes back. Unless you're a priest. Verses 33 and 34, a priest gets everything back. Aren't you thankful that he calls you priests? 35 through 46, he tells us, by the way, in regards to the poor and the stranger and the needy, adopt them. Don't just hire them, take them in and make them family. That's the point. It says in verse 45 to get you an idea of this. Actually, go back to verse 36. Take no usury interest. If you're going to lend him anything, don't ever lend it for the purpose of any temporary profit. Everything should have an eternal gain to it. But fear, the, fear your God that your brother may live with you. In verse 45 it says, Moreover, when you buy the children of the strangers who dwell among you and their families who are with you and beget in the land, then they shall become so. It says that you shall take them as an inheritance as well for your children to inherit them. And I, here's the interesting thing. You look at this and you go, no, wait a minute, what does that mean? Understand, the place where they're going, they're supposed to kill. Remember that? Those people were going to be annihilated. And he goes, if any of those people actually survive, you actually don't kill them, I want you taking them in as family. They are not to be left out somewhere where they're going to be killed by their own, where they're going to go back to being your enemies. The only option left is for them to be with you permanently. They are purchased. And you say, well, that's pretty rough. By the way, let me just say in regards to slavery, kidnapping, as we understand slavery, is a punishable by death according to God. That is not acceptable. But you know what's interesting? This is what Jesus did for me. I was his enemy and he adopted me. And he didn't say, look it, you're just going to be until the year of Jubilee and then I'm going to set you free. He says, you are permanently a part of my family. Permanently a part of my family. And not only that, I'm going to walk with you. I expect your family to be part of my family. That's what I want. And I get it. Praise God that I'm not in this for a part-time thing. This is it. Verses 47 to 52, and of course, obviously, we're picking it up only because I want to respect the time. A sojourner or a stranger becomes rich. One of your brethren who dwells him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or a sojourner close to you or to a member of the stranger's family. After he is sold, he may be redeemed again. Notice, by the way, the term is redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him. His uncle, his uncle's son, that's your cousin, may redeem him. Or anyone who is near of kin to him and his family may redeem him. If he's able to, he may redeem himself. Thus he shall reckon to him who bought him. The price of the release shall be according to the number of years from the year that it was sold to the year of Jubilee. Remember, that's always the point here. He shall do it in according to the time of a hired servant for him. Now understand in this, the years remaining it will repay in regards to that. This is the story of Ruth. If you remember, the whole story of Ruth was that Ruth's mother was in a position where that's what she had to do. And no one could redeem her but a relative. And thus comes Boaz, who redeems not only the mother, but also the daughter as well, and the land as well. Interesting, 
Because this is exactly why we read this in Hebrews. Listen, chapter 2, verse 14. Inasmuch as the children have partaken in flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those through fear of death their whole life were subject to bondage. Understand, the Bible says, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, you were bought at a price. You are not your own. 1 Corinthians 7, 23, you were bought at a price. Hebrews 9, 12, it says that you were redeemed, not with the blood of temporary goats or calves, but Jesus himself with his own blood entered the most holy place once and for all and obtained eternal redemption. In Revelation chapter 5, in that big celebration right before the tribulation, this is what they sang in their song, You're worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and have redeemed us to God, is what it tells us. You redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. There is a time when we're going to gather together and we're going to say, Thank you for redeeming me. Because I was nothing but your enemy. In the last few verses... Then he tells us that everything is to be done in light. I don't buy anything forever. Anything that I'm going to have forever is given to me by Jesus. The only eternal thing around me are people. And I understand why then he says at the end of it all, for the children of Israel are servants to me. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, 19, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break, up, break in and steal. For there, your, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Please hear me as I roll this up now to close it. In the book of Romans, it tells us that there is a time that God calls the time of the Gentiles. So follow me on this. In First Peter, it says in second as well, God is not slack as some consider slackness. God's no slacker. So why hasn't the Lord come back yet? Let me ask you a question. If the Lord would have come back one year ago, how many of you in this last year have accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior? Would you raise your hand? Within, okay, within this last year, within this last year, has accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. Okay? Look at that. Okay, look at that. Okay. If the Lord didn't come back, if the Lord came back five years ago, how many of you would not have come because you've responded to Christ in the last five years? Let me see by your hands. Aren't you thankful He didn't go five years ago? If the Lord didn't come back ten years ago, how many of you would not have gone because you hadn't accepted Jesus yet? Let me see by your hands. Take a look around. Aren't you thankful He didn't come back ten years ago? So listen, he's slack, not wanting any to perish. Doesn't want any of you to perish. But wanting all to come to repentance. You get it? But he isn't going to get everyone. He's going to get... So what if, what if, let me roll this as a proposition to you. What if there is going to be a moment when anyone who would accept him as Lord and Savior without something as radical as a rapture will happen? Everyone else, it'll take something like that for them to do so. What if that's the case? That makes sense with that verse. It isn't with anyone to perish. But there's going to be a moment where that one person is going to say, All right, Lord, I say yes to you. And he knows that that's the last person to say yes to him before a rapture. Before something as radical as that will take for them to say yes. What if that person's in this room? 
you thought that? What if right now you're debating on saying yes to Jesus? Will you just say yes? <laughs> Ready to go. How about you? Could you imagine? You're like, yes, Lord. And we all go and you're like, whoa, bless me. It's like the golden ticket. You're like, yeah. <laughs> Could you imagine? What if? Here's the deal. We all deserve hell, but he doesn't want us there. He prepared that for the devil and his angels. That's clear according to Matthew 24 and 25. He says, go to the place prepared for the devil and his angels. He didn't build it for you. He says, you want to go to, that? You want to, go to hell over my dead body? And while you, while you try to crawl over, I'll rise. We all deserve hell. But God paid our penalty on the cross through Jesus Christ who died for us and rose again. And now he invites you to accept his gift. And if you accept his gift, you will be his. Washed clean, made innocent, declared right with him. And you made the list. The book of life. You've been born in heaven. So when he comes to take home his own, takes you as well. Now, if you want to say no, you have that prerogative. You know what's awaiting you? Rough times. But can I say this? Even if what wraps up everything here, which he tells us ultimately even the elements are waiting for, for great heat, everything will be ex- one big explosion, the whole thing. You probably heard it said, I do believe in the Big Bang. You just have it on the wrong side. The Big Bang happens at the end. In the end of it all, beloved... Please hear me. In the end, the only thing that's going to be left is us. No pews, no church, no temple, that's Jesus. No light, that's his. That's him. The only place where you get to be a light's here. There he's, he's everything. You hear you get to be the sanctuary. You get to be the church. There it's him. Here we chase after pavement for heaven. Or people. But if you haven't accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, you have that opportunity to say yes. But listen, even if the Lord doesn't wrap things up right now here, don't you realize that's what happens with us? Isn't that our testimony, some of us? We had the opportunity to say yes, and we said no, and we went through our own little tribulation time where God says, have you had enough yet? And you're like, no, I'm fine, I'm fine. Come on. God's like, okay. Bam! How about now? You're fine. God's like, really? Do you believe your lie? No, fine. Look at I'm drunk. I don't know. I might be pregnant. Yeah, wow. Your life's so... You need me. And you can avoid it. Hey, that doesn't mean your life will be without trials. He still purifies and prepares... Beloved, there's so much we could avoid if we just say yes. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I ask an intercession for this fellowship, myself included. First, can I just say thank you for the gift of this flock? What a gift to be able to today 
stand here and talk about your return. And Lord, we recognize that laced throughout this entire beautiful book, over 340 different references to your return. And we recognize, Lord, that this is not our home. But forgive us for where we forget that at times. For where we get caught up in the field and forget to let the land rest a little and and ask what life's really about from an eternal perspective. And Lord, I know there will always be the tyrannical urgent around us. That thing that seems like if we don't touch it now, everything will catch fire. And I think about how many times we don't do what you call us to. Even rest in you. Because we think somehow we have to put out some form of fire and make something happen. We ask your forgiveness. Because we recognize so much of that causes us to lose perspective. And then we get trapped in the immediate and forget about eternity. But Lord, we don't want to wake up one day and realize our life has been wasted. Because we can't go back and relive it. So I pray for every person here, myself included, Lord, that you get us hungry for your return and we dwell in the shadow of the Jubilee. That everything we do is in light of it. That we recognize that no matter what we invest in, someday we're going to have to leave it. No matter what we buy, someday we're going to have to leave it. No matter what we go after, someday we're going to have to leave it. Because someday we're going to leave it to go home. And all of the purchased possessions will mean nothing. All of our service to anything but you will mean nothing. And so Lord, I pray today that you reframe our entire being to dwell in the light of your jubilee. I pray, Lord, if there be anyone in here who has never accepted your gift, but today knows they need to. You've made it simple. You paid the price. You died on the cross. You rose again. And now all you're asking is for us to say yes to you as Savior, Ransom, and Lord. And if that be anyone in here, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, show them their need. That they would walk out of here sure today that they belong to you. That if tonight would be the night, whether you come back to take us or whether you just revoke their breath, that tonight would be the night that they would be secure and rest in you. So saints, I ask you to pray with me and the rest of you who are considering right now. I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. If you're willing to say yes at the end, say amen confidently. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let that, those words be my words. Let that prayer be my prayer. And here it is. God in heaven, I confess to you, I'm a sinner. I'm not perfect. I'm in need of saving Lord, I want to be sure that I belong to you. So today I confess to you, my Savior, having died on the cross for me, paid for all of my sins, buried and just like your scripture promised, rose again on the third day, I confess you as my Savior, my payment, my ransom. And now as risen from the dead, my resurrected Lord, you have the right to my life now. I don't want to call you my own and be called your own and not live like it. So Lord, make me your own today. May I live my entire life in light of the Jubilee, knowing that there will be a day 
when I'll be completely and absolutely leaving everything behind except for others. Lord, make my life the difference in other people's lives to bring them to you. As I surrender myself to you now, I'm yours. In Jesus' name. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen.